Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Automate It, live streaming to you from the past from Polymath Robotics Global Northern California headquarters in San Francisco. I, of course, am CEO of Polymath Robotics and one of your co-hosts here at Automate It, Stefan Selsoxmacher. And sitting across from me is a man whose shirt declares himself as a, and I quote, total Ross bag. And who are you, Mr. Ross bag? So right as we were talking about this, we were talking about how your state of dress is decreasing over your time. <laughs> I am that influence of wearing t-shirts and just not, you know, being very presentable. And I'm just wearing a poorly fitting sweater that I bought from Target. So I'm right there with you, buddy. Welcome again to Automate It. This is our weekly podcast where we talk about robots, how to build them, and dive into a fair amount of nitty-gritty. We have two segments on our lovely show. The first is where we play a game where we spitball together a robot. And the second is where we talk about a topic. And Ilya, what are we going to talk about this week? This week, we're talking about the death of everyday robotics, company out of Google. AKA no-day robotics these days. Oh, bad pun. <laughs> Sadness. I see I'm rubbing off on you negatively in other ways, too. <laughs> Russia. The Ruski mirror. <laughs> but yeah, so Everyday Robotics was a Google company working on robots for the house and the office. Easy places to build robots, as we've uh, spitballed together before. So again, we're going to start off with our game. And this game, I like to say, is a simulation of what it's like to start a robotics company, where you have one person who has a strong bias towards a particular technology to use or not use, and another person who has a bias towards you know some industry, some some place, some vertical to make a business out of it. Ilya, what's the uh, the business or the environment that we're gonna? We're going to have our technology in these days. All right. So I'm going to pick a card here at random, and it is home use. Look home at that. Home use. <laughs> All right. What technology are we going to pick? Well, the first one I have here is robot arm. <laughs> um, and I have to say, I was talking to uh, some friends earlier about how robot arms are one of my weaker areas, especially because we, we recently got asked if we could just incidentally solve a open general AI a robotic arm problem on the side, on top of our autonomy stack. Let's do robot arms in the house. Totally unrelated to what everyday robots is trying to do. <laughs> so what are what are some good use cases? So I I actually, you know, things like unloading the dishwasher, things like putting the 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 laundry away, things like loading the fridge, those are all all, all, all kind of standard boilerplate, but I have to say I'm lazy with all of them. Yeah. So that's that's the first thing the robot arm you want to do is what is our payload capacity that we need to handle? I just pick a number and we'll work from there. Yeah. I mean, I guess like the the challenge here is the heavier it is, the more unwieldy the arm. Yeah. And like, I, I would say we shouldn't do folding laundry because that's not even going to be fun to spitball because there's been like 80,000 companies who have said, I want my shirts folded, but I don't want to hire a housekeeper. So instead I'll buy a $500,000 robot. If you want to see a great video, there's still videos on YouTube of the PR2 out of Willow Garage mm -hmm. folding towels. And the Works first great, right? Yeah. The first iteration would pick up a towel and then would scan it while rotating it in front of itself and then find a corner, grab that corner, do the same operation again, find the other corner and eventually fold it. And it was blazing fast at about 45 minutes per towel. <laughs> I would say that is faster than I put my laundry away. <laughs> so let's not do towel folding. I guess let's say the dishwasher, that feels like a, a knowable problem because, you know, the dishes, theoretically, 90% of your dish, like 90% of your dishwashing dishes by volume are the same dishes over and over. There's a handful of cabinets that you need to go to. 
Yeah, and the dishes are rigid bodies. Yep. That helps a lot. Sometimes. They're always the same shape. Tupperware, I guess Tupperware is rigid enough. Oh, rigid, rigid enough. Yep. Right? Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. Now, the challenge, though, is like, you know, glasses, for example, are made of glass. A little yeah. known fact for those of you following along at home. And if you squeeze them too long, people people don't appreciate broken glass on the floor of their kitchen. Well, it's not even it's not even the squeezing problem. The problem is actually detecting them in the first place. Mm. Really transparent, shiny glass that just came out of a dishwasher is really clear. So what you could do is you could spray a powder on them. To yeah, make them that more will, detectable. That will make you super, super <laughs> likable. You know, just to make it better appearances, we'll make it an IR only powder that's transparent optically. Yeah. But it's this like mystery science powder it's that it just sprays all over your it, food. It, may, it, it gets your dishes away, but it's highly toxic. <laughs> yeah. You know, super carcinogenic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Yeah. Well, I actually feel like I actually feel like glasses are the easiest part of the dishes to put away. No, I don't know. I disagree. I think just the perception problem alone. No, 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 no. Sorry. As a lazy human. Oh, I, see, I find I that to be like the, the if, easy part. If I'm disappointing my wife by only putting away one part of the dishwasher, it's the glasses. <laughs> it's like, oh, I had time for the glasses, honey, while having a cup of water and then I had to go. So good luck with everything else. So you're saying is we're going to spend a crazy amount of money in R&D mm -hmm. on a project that almost sort of solves a minor problem. Yeah. Not even entirely. Yeah, we're in robotics. Yeah, sounds like robotics. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. Sounds like the standard robot. So approach. I think we could do plates. Silverware might be hard because like, even my silverware is fairly inconsistent. I've yeah. like accumulated silverware through the years that are all like kind of different sizes and not uniform. I mean, the, the, I think the trick you could do there is usually there's a silverware caddy. Yep. So you pick up the caddy, you dump it out onto on something. Uh, not on the floor, <laughs> but like on, on, on a reasonably clean surface. Yep. And then that that way you separate. Well, I can, out I can do file. one better. I just got a new dishwasher because I'm living the high life. I have a special silverware tray. So for for reference, high life in startup land is we can actually pay ourselves a salary. Yeah, it's quite impressive. And I have a dishwasher. Yeah, <laughs> and I have this tray that comes out and it's all single stack, single level, laid out perpendicular, uh, parallel oh, to yeah. the floor. Yeah, and like you could just basically go suction up like a knife at a time, a fork at a time. Let me guess, it's a Bosch. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> Yeah, so so you can have a grasping problem there. I think actually, kind of side note, I heard this great soundbite, which I wish I'd come up with. I don't remember who did, but somebody who was reviewing the Tesla robot. And he said, I knew that the Tesla robot was not a real effort when I noticed that the fingertips were hard metal. <laughs> and, and, it, and it doesn't make sense until you really think about it. Like try to pick up an object with a pair of tongs yep. or a pair of spoons. Yep. It's practically impossible for any hard object. So you want your gripper to be soft so that you can squeeze a little harder and it just grabs the thing. That's why your fingertips are soft and, and sort of like... Mine are a little bony. Yeah, even even that though. <laughs> Probably not steel. <laughs> so if you have kind of a squishy gripper, there's a there's a cool kind of gripper called the jamming gripper. Have okay. you ever seen these kind of things? No. Fun weekend project if you want to do Quick it. Quick weekend right? project. No, seriously. Actually, actually really easy. You take a balloon, yep. you take coffee grounds, yep. and you take an empty syringe and some surgical tubing and it's san francisco so there are syringes lying around not those kind of syringes the, the arts and crafts syringes arts and crafts syringes what's your daughter into <laughs> Shh, don't ask those questions so what, what you do is you fill the balloon with with grounds and you have the syringe and you just pull out the air out of the balloon with that surgical tubing mm -hmm. and the the grounds will compress okay and the cool thing is is if the, there's air in the balloon you can squish against an object pull out the air 
and the balloon will deform and jam around the object and pick it up. Yeah. And this kind of gripper can pick up pennies off a table. Yeah. It can pick up cards. It can pick up practically anything. The only problem with the jamming grippers is it tends to be fragile. Yeah. But that kind of gripper is perfect. Perfect for silverware. Perfect for silverware. Perfect yeah. for dishes. Perfect well, for but glasses. Like if you're picking up, if you're picking up, say we have like cheapo steak knives that we somehow sometimes put yeah. laid up in the dishwasher. I'm uh, not going to do so good with this gripper. Exactly. That's that's again fragile rubber yeah. surface. So realistically, to unload the dishwasher, we're going to need multiple implements for the different types of objects. Like basically, we're going to have to run things through some visual tool to say sharp, not sharp. We picked out these uh, quote unquote aesthetically pleasing plates that uh, for our wedding reg registry that weigh about 85 pounds each <laughs> and are about a centimeter tall for, for reasons that I have yet to determine. So Mostly lead. <laughs> most, <laughs> mostly lead. So we probably need a normal robotic gripper for those plates specifically. Yeah. Or I'd have to buy new plates and that's just you know not a sacrifice I'm willing to make for robots. So we, we probably need a tool that has multiple grippers that can go and grab things. Or, you know, I mean, I, I, I put forward the jamming gripper, but you're right. I think like a classic soft gripper, it's still mechanically driven, but just covered in a soft material yeah. would probably do the right job. So a question that I have, I, for one, don't like the clanging of dishes noise that often happens when you're unloading the dishwasher, which makes me want to say, like, stack up all the plates and then put them in the cupboard. But of course, you know, 10 plates yeah. are uh, 10 times heavier than one plate. I mean, I think getting your robot to not clang a dish is easier than for humans. Because mm -hmm. if, if you know where it's trying to go, it could very easily do the motion control profile where it speeds there. Yep. And then the last centimeter, it moves at a complete snail's pace. Okay. And then it won't it won't make a loud noise. That so, part's not too hard. So how would we go about, given that people's kitchens are relatively unstructured, but not frequently changing environment outside yeah. of whether they have stuff, stuff on the counter or not. Yep. How do we go about figuring out where things should go? Yeah, I mean, so like teach, you, teach and repeat. You've gotten your plate out. Yeah, teach and repeat, I think, is the best way. Is is you have a perception system like cameras and, and LiDAR. You tell the robot yeah, but like teaching. I don't, I don't, I mean, if 30% of pixels changing messes up teach and repeat, you know, sometimes there's going to be some stupid kids art on the fridge. I, I don't mean. Sometimes there's going to be pastries left out, you know. I don't mean teach and repeat in the sense of visual localization mm -hmm. or visual. I mean, literally, you, you take the robot gripper, you have it pick up a plate, and then you place that plate in the correct cupboard. And it yeah. knows from reference that cupboard contains this kind of plate. Okay. And you have to meaning, do that in such a way because like not all the plates will go in the same spot because right. the next plate will go about a centimeter above the first plate. Right, exactly. And 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 not everybody's a programmer, so you don't want to force people yep. to learn machine code just to teach your robot how to put away dishes. You just show it. You so literally let's, say let's talk some product details here. All right. What what do you think a robot and like we probably need it either needs to be mobile around definitely, the kitchen. Definitely does. Okay. So definitely needs to be mobile around the kitchen. I'd say the tallest cabinets are probably seven feet off the floor, six feet off, something like seven mm. feet off the floor. Sounds, sounds safe. We need to be able to extend, let's say a pound at a time, seven feet off the floor and maybe like three feet away from the driving surface. Yeah. What do you think that arm is going to cost us? Well, so you can cheat, right? Yep. If you look at the way that a lot of these robots, including the Pier 2 and, and more modern efforts in home robots, they'll actually have the spine extend the robot upwards. Yep. So the arm only ever has a three feet of grip yep. or, or reach. Yeah, but the whole you arm know assembly. You could do, actually, actually, screw that. What you could do is you have you make the person have a placemat on their countertop, 
where like there's a this is the plate section and this is the cup section and this is the bowl section and then like the the robot gets it out of the dishwasher and then it's in the easy consolidated pile to go put in the cabinet so solving half the problem again but way easier all right so i think we got to name this thing well 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 let's let's figure out the price of this thing so what's the what's the robot arm and sensing and, and the driving around going to cost us i mean the sensing suite would probably be around 5 6k if I had to guess. Okay. Mobile base is another 10 ish yep. on the cheap end. Yeah. And the arm is probably another 20 to 30. Okay. For the kind of dexterity. So we're looking at including us, the gripper. So we're looking at about sixty thousand dollars or so yep. bill of materials. Yep. Call it $180,000 so that you have a 70% margin before, you know, marketing, sales, shipping. Yeah, shipping's gonna be non-trivial. $180,000 uh capital expense that will probably break down every three years yeah um, every three years that's glorious what about <laughs> my Roomba doesn't even perform reliably every week and as a fun fact when i lived in singapore i could have a live-in maid who would do all this for me for 500 us a month and she'd cook dinner so this robot's gonna be great what's it called it's called the general disappointment of robots solidified into one product three thousand three thousand <laughs> <laughs> Ilya, the other day we saw news that Everyday Robots, a massive engineering and robotics effort within within Google, who was trying to build robots to do everyday tasks like put your dishes away or, you or know, collect trash off of the cafeteria that they had. That or, or squeegee a table, yeah. which was a lot of gifts about the sque- table squeegeeing. Yep. That they are no more. They are kaput. They're 200 plus engineers who have worked on that and their code base that has been built over the last 15 plus years is going to be shelved. Some of the engineers will be moving on to other things within the the Google Alphabet family. And some of them are probably listening to this podcast thinking, what can I do with my life after this? And why am I listening to this podcast? The answer is come work with Polymath Robotics. <laughs> but no, I mean, if you, if you really think about the numbers and, and you're more of the numbers guy, mm-hmm. but paying 200 engineers for a decade-ish. Yep. Google salaries and Google benefits is an enormous amount of money. I mean, we're talking about more than a billion dollars for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I'd say probably in the two to five billion dollar range. Right. So you're talking about a, a multi-billion dollar effort. Yeah. And Google's not going to license this technology. I'd yep. be very surprised. Yep. They're not going to sell it. I'd yep. also be very surprised. So they've just... It's going to get some code rot. It's a lot of code rot, right? Because yep. it's in-house built, probably. It's yep. probably not using standards. Yep. Might, but not a lot, right? Google likes to use their own tooling for their own stuff, and it makes it a little hard to integrate with. So Google essentially paid a person to dig a hole the size of a building, bury $2 billion in it, and then set it on fire over the last 10 years. That's that's the effect. Set the money on fire or just the building? Both. Okay. okay. The money, the building's probably can I Can I dig into the building to get the money? Is this like this hard drive full of Bitcoin in a landfill situation? <laughs> it has long since evaporated. <laughs> but, you know, Google has the kind of money to spend on this stuff. Yeah. I forget what the number was, but like some insane percentage of Google people don't work on search. Yeah. And search brings in all the money. Yep. So, you know, like 90 plus percent of Googlers do not bring in money to the company. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a weird problem when Google first IPO, they brought on a CFO who realized it was problematic that they were so profitable. Yeah. And and Google that basically had a mandate of make less money so that you attract less regulatory and competitive attention. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Google and other large companies, Amazon, Microsoft, you name it, all have these kind of other bets, mm-hmm. divisions working on future tech. 
VR was popular for a number of years. Robotics has been popular for a number of years. You name it, right? Yep. Space, yep. drones. Everybody has these kind of other bits, bets divisions. Intel, for example, built an entire division in Israel. They acquired some companies that made some of their own stuff doing perception for robots yep. with, with their kind of mobile, more for the automotive space. Yep. But Intel released kind of a series of camera products for yep. robotics and, and smart home stuff. What ends up happening in almost all these cases is that the parent company's main product is so much more profitable and so much more long-term and short-term useful that they eventually stop spending money on this. Or the in, in Alphabet's case, you know, the meal ticket gets under under a threat from possible competitors and all the other bets get written off. The thing that I find very similar about this whole situation is kind of like when you're trying to recruit someone to work at a startup. And and it's happened to me time and time again. I'm trying to recruit some some engineer to to join my team. And they have a competing offer from a Google, from a Facebook, from an Intel. And there's this line of thought that happens in all of these conversations of like, but it's just a safer job. It's an, you know, it's my, my job will still be there. It's more predictable. And this thing seems fun, but there's no chance anything's going to change. I, I actually remember maybe a year and a half ago, we were trying to recruit someone who was working at Zooks who said, you know, if Zooks failed, it would be a big deal. So Zooks is probably fine. And Zooks is exactly one of these other bets. Yeah. I think the the thing about large tech companies or large companies in general, they only seem more solid because at whatever level you joined, you're far you're abstracted enough away from the chaos. Because every organization from a five-person startup to the U.S. Navy has a has a decent amount of chaos. It's just whether or not you get to see it. Yeah, the the, the secret here is even the exemplary, very data-driven organizations will still have you know the pet project of some senior executive who just wants to do it for whatever reason, and then he changes jobs, and there's no more champion for that project, and that yep. project disappears. Yep. And that happens a lot. It's a, a, a thing I've heard about one of the companies selling robots to the military is they see something like 70% of churn in between projects, not because people aren't happy with their robots, but because like the wrong general gets reassigned. Yeah. And now there's no one to sign that that next project along. And I mean, I think I think of this a lot with with kind of in general, the idea of these projects that are patronized by a large company, they seem stable because you don't understand the political wins that make them happen. That make them work. I, I mean, one interesting thing about the the Intel RealSense cameras in particular is when they announced that they were downsizing it and they went back from like, let's say, call it eight models to two, mm -hmm. some number around there. The One of the leaders was talking, he was saying, you know, we're actually a profitable division. We are profitable. We're doing well. We're growing. People like our products. There's a lot of runway, but we are not profitable enough. <laughs> you know, our margins are only X and they should be 1.5 X. And hence, they're shutting down 70% of the people that work on this project. Yep. How disheartening is that to you as an engineer who works just as hard as a big company as at a small company? Stuff gets killed because it's just not making as much money. Yep. That's insane. Oh, That's yeah. That's so disappointing. Yeah, I mean, and even in a bigger sense than real sense, some of the, the Google projects, it's, 
we had to make product decisions that made the overall product 10 or a thousand times harder to build because if we only make $50 billion a year or, or $10 billion a year, that's not enough to be interesting. Exactly. We're only worth the investment if we can make half a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. And coming back to the everyday robots, I don't know, obviously, the details of why they made the decision they did now. Yep. It's probably a cost-saving thing, yep. might not be making. But you know, realistically, home robots of the, of the Jetsons kind we're still even conservatively 50 years away or aggressively, sorry, 50 years away. You really need a level of intelligence we're not able to produce, a level of sensors that we're not able to produce for for reasonable costs, right? You know, could you build a Jetson-like robot for $60,000? Probably today. Like you could build a modern PR2 today for a quarter of the cost. But what will it do? Right. Not only what will it do, who could afford that? <laughs> right? Your market's going to be like four guys. <laughs> and frankly, those are four guys who all will also have an actual housekeeper doing all the tasks that are too hard for the robot. Right. Because the, ro- the robot will be there to serve drinks at parties. Not so much, you know, wake the kids up and make sure they're showered so I can take an extra 30 minutes a nap. Hey, yeah. I mean, it, forget the intelligence part. The the even just the actuators, the arms, you're talking brute mechanics and electrical wiring versus literal nanomachinery in human muscles, <laughs> right? Like we have a long way to go before we're even four orders of magnitude less efficient than an arm is, you know, in, in terms of dexterity, in terms of reach, in yeah. terms of strength to weight ratio, in terms of power efficiency, you name it, right? Yeah. We are very far away from that. I mean, what, so going back to everyday robots, more kind of in particular, I, I what what sucks the most for me about this is some of the solutions they came up with seems rather clever. Mm-hmm. Like I love the fact that the robot itself is essentially a, a pylon. It has a single arm that can then rotate anywhere on the pylon to have a w- wider range of what that arm can do. They're moving their sensors around so they can see things at different angles. Like it, it seems like they made a lot of really good engineering decisions. Yeah, which makes it all the more frustrating that they're wasn't great product thought. Well, they were even using the honeycomb LiDAR sensor Mm -hmm. that Google developed, right? So they were sharing tech between divisions Mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff. Like, it's hard to imagine a use case that that would be worth, let's say, on a recurring basis, $50,000 a year for. Yeah. Like, that you couldn't just, like, solve with, like, security cameras or people who are not paid a lot of money or, or what have you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the problem. And so you're left with these weird edge cases, like yeah. dangerous environments or secured environments yep. or, you know, hostile environments in some other way, like a like a military application. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. It's tough to justify it. And so it, it sounds really cool. And, it, and it, I'm sure it's a good talent attractor. And mm-hmm. on the off one in a 10,000 chance that somebody cracks it and makes it work well, it's a good bet. Yep. But it's still a very long shot bet. Yeah. And there's, you know, Google's feeling a lot more pressure in the late current term from chat GPT type efforts yep. and, and those sort of things, which are much more core to its business model. Yep. And so it's it doesn't make sense to invest in this long shots when your core moneymaker is under threat. Yep. And, and frankly, when people are making layoffs for the sake of looking as cool as their other friends in the CEO club. Yeah. So those two things put together of everyone else laid off 6%. Why don't you lay off 6%? Plus, you know, I saw a headline about this competitor who might eat your lunch if, if they get better. Yeah, I think I think we read the same article by like a study about, you know, most of these layoffs right now are, are 
kind of copycat behavior yeah. more so than actual aesthetic. necessary. Yeah. Aesthetic, ruining people's lives aesthetically. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, another lovely thing about working in an incredibly large corporation where the uh, the chaos seems more, more remote. What do you think's next in the tr- in the world of home robots? So, I mean, I think we've... I think we've had an interesting 20 years of robotics where robots went from being inc- impossibly hard 20 years ago to only really quite hard today. More people have seen robots do things in the last 10 years than probably more people in a city like San Francisco have seen robots do things <laughs> in the last 10 years than probably 10x the population who had ever seen a robot do anything between 1950 and 2000. So I guess like if home robots seem like one of those those particularly most interested in applications or might not even home robots, servant robots. Yeah, yeah. Seem like one of those those archetypal applications much like self-driving cars. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, do you want my realistic bet or do you want my sci-fi bet? Let's do both. All right. Realistically speaking, I think the challenge that robotics has faced is in a lot of ways, it's come a little bit too late hmm. where a lot of our appliances are robots in all but name today. Well, and they, like, don't, they don't move in a... I, I, they, don't, I, they don't move. Yeah. There's a whole debate we can have about that. Yeah. Let's, let's skip that. I, the, I've once uh, heard the line that a robot's a robot until it's useful, at which point it becomes a machine. Exactly. Exactly. So like... You know, your your dishwasher is is frankly more it's intelligent sensing and making decisions, exactly. and changing how it moves. As as is your washing machine, as is all of the appliances in your house, right? So if if you were in a 1950s context or mm-hmm. a 1920s context, even more, and you had a machine that could scrub the clothing on the washboard and hang it up and do your dishes, that actually is a much better proposition than buying each of these appliances separately kind of thing right? yeah. in that context. Yep. Today, I think we're, we're too late. I, mean, so, we, I think part of what we've discovered along the way is that intelligence is cheap enough that you don't need it to freely move through space. Yeah. You it, can basically copy and paste intelligence into your washing machine and into your dryer and into your dishwasher and into your thermostat. Exactly. And so, so I think the realistic bet is that Robotics in the home is becoming more diffuse mm-hmm. and and is currently not very well interconnected. Yeah. And I think if you have better standards on communication, so that like Zigbee. Like not even not even forget like forget the actual hardware. I'm talking yeah. like I want my Samsung fridge to talk to my LG TV yeah. and not be stupid about it and yeah. not need to sign 12 service agreements mm-hmm. and pay five different fees. And you have that sort of thing. So the only real space left for a robot is the tasks that haven't been well automated. Vacuuming is one of them, which is why the Roombas are so successful, right? Think of some other ones in the house that haven't been already been roboticized basically by the appliances. Well, even that, you know, people complain about the dishes. Honestly, do your dishes by hand for a week and you will never again complain about putting, doing the dishes. Well, I think I dishes. told you my solution for that, which is just have two dishwashers. Oh, two dishwashers. Yeah, that's a classic well, you, you solve the, the robot dishwasher problem by having two, one of which is always dirty. And then you're always moving stuff from the clean one to the dirty one. Here's the real question. Why do you have a washer and a dryer? <laughs> Why doesn't you have one? Because the one... machines that do both are sometimes okay and sometimes bad. So there's a problem to fix. Yeah. Why do I have to come no, downstairs? No, we need general move... AI. No, no, no. General AI. Yeah, right? $60,000 robot to pick I, up I also, clothing when from Polymath one... Polymath makes it big, I'm going to have a all-in-one washer dryer in my closet, which I will use as my hamper. There you go. Um, while my wife is very against two dishwashers, she's on board with <laughs> the Stefan self-cleaning hamper. 
<laughs> so back to that note on, you know, executives having pet projects. <laughs> Exhibit A on, on how weird robotics projects get started. But yeah, so the, the realistic bet is that we need we need intelligence to kind of tie these systems together and we need to improve the, the efficiency and usability of our current systems. The sci-fi bet that I have is the piece that's missing from that tied together world is an embodiment of that intelligence in some way that you can talk to it like I'm talking to you right now across the table. So not like talk to my phone, mm-hmm. not talk to a screen, not mm-hmm. like I need some way that I can look and, and point to a person and be like, you robot of my house, this dishwasher needs to do X. But right? using a tool like say, hey, Google, go do blah, blah, blah for me. That would never work. No, I, you need a it, point. It's not it's not that it wouldn't work. It's, it's awkward. You're a very I, pointing person. Well, I think humans are right. I think humans are embodied. Humans like, are pointy people. Yes. Yeah. Humans are very pointy people. But yes, that goes on a t-shirt. No, but seriously, the, like having run Google and Alexa and whatever my house for a long time, you, you get really tired of using the wake word, of telling it a very specific yeah. string of sentences to do X. I mean, an idea that I loved that I think I've talked to you before, but maybe no one else, no, you didn't see the show. I think Star Trek Andromeda had the idea of a embodiment of the ship. Mm-hmm. Who was like a hologram who would walk around and be like, ah, right now I'm 68 degrees and the washing machine is running. By the way, you should go move the load from the washer to the dryer because you're too cheap to have an all-in-one washer dryer. Right, exactly. That that sort of thing, I think I think that's what Astro was trying to do without really realizing it. It's kind of being an embodied intelligence. Mm-hmm. I think until we have a way to project data right into our eyes mm-hmm. with smart contact lenses or glasses or whatever, we're going to need a thing. Like, like the movie Don't Worry, Darling. Sure. Yep. We will need a thing to refer to. Yeah. And and I think the smart speakers are sort of there. But but if you've used them for enough time, you'll feel the kind of awkwardness of using them. I don't at all. I take very naturally to commanding a disembodied voice to solve problems for me. So we, we use ours in our, in our daughter's room to play lullabies. Mm-hmm. And the best feeling ever is when you tell it to play a lullaby. And most of the time it plays it and shuts up. But 5% of the time, specifically when Alice is cranky, when the song ends, it will immediately pipe up saying, do you want me to play another one? And Alice pops completely away. Google Home doesn't do that to right. me. Like, you gotta, you gotta get fantastic AI. experience. So embodied intelligence that understands that a toddler's trying to sleep and maybe yeah. it shouldn't blast at full volume. So in other words, you need cameras all throughout your house to go you, with your smart you don't speakers. Need cameras. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need cameras. You can get by with other it stuff. It seems like cameras mounted in every corner of every room is better than or is is an easier thing to build. So if you're if you're an investor who's investing in sensor technology, millimeter wave. That's all I'm gonna say. That is the next future millimeter technology wave sensor. Of the day. Yeah, no, seriously. Millimeter wave sensors. That's the future for home occupancy stuff. <laughs> Spend money in that. All, all these folks on the breadlines from Everyday Robotics, what do you what do you think they should do next? Yeah. I, actually, I have opinions. Yeah. I, oh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> what do you not have opinions on? <laughs> I, I've yet to find something, but I have opinion on it already. Yeah, exactly. No, actually, I I it's it sucks, right? Not only everyday robotics, but a lot of robotics companies are getting hit by layoffs and yeah, by economic struggling. It's hard times in the robot world. It, it it sucks. It does. Especially, you know, these a lot of creative people in very specific domains that yep. can't just easily switch domains. However, I think that this is going to be a great flowering of new startups targeting very specific things. Me too. Right? Like, I'm actually super excited to see where this goes. I think there's going to be a lot of great companies. And I think what's exciting about this is, you know, more so 
more so than any industry outside of tech. Tech people, especially ones who have been as well paid as folks at Everyday Robotics probably were, as long as they don't have too much of a credit card problem, probably have a fairly decent safety net, probably have a fairly decent uh, nest egg, and can start tooling around with some cool stuff. Yeah. Probably have some hardware that, you know, happen to end up going home with them and can probably start making some cool things. If the cool things that they're making need to move from point to point without hitting stuff, they should probably be building on top of polymath rather than rebuilding all that not fun stuff once again. But in the meantime, there's a large number of open arm problems. There's a large number of, of problems that are frankly more sellable than can you put my laundry away for me? And I think of things in, in greenhouses, I think in things of factories, I think in things in meal prep, I think of things in, in, in kind of in, in maintenance of, of remote equipment. There's, there's stuff all across the board where if you can build a mobile robot with an arm that, that is, you know, not terrible, you can, you can make the world a better and more automated place. And similar to the, you know, it, for a long time, if you're doing computer vision or machine learning, you're building everything from scratch. Yep. And then there was OpenCV and then PyTorch and all these toolkits that have appeared. And similar to us, you know, we use ROS as our foundation, yep. but we build a lot of stuff. So if you are interested in solving home robot problems, for example, yep. or whatever you guys are wanting to start as a new business, and you don't want to worry about configuring ROS to navigate properly or configuring Navstack too. That's the piece where it could come in and be one more of these services yep. where we just take care of that problem. Of course, you can solve it yourself. You're smart people. I have no doubt about it, but you're going to waste you a lot of time. You could also build your own operating system and your own programming language and be Temple OS 5.0, which <laughs> we, you, the world does need. You could also build off of Ross for sure, but you're going to waste a lot of time doing it. And I think people are hungry to get their projects going and they don't have time to waste. Yeah. Well, that being said, Elliot, what are we talking about next week? <laughs> I don't know, Stefan. What are we talking about next week? You tell me. The same thing we talk about every night. <laughs> How robots will take over the world. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. We will, uh, sorry for missing last week, and we are excited to talk to you next week. See you soon.